today we are in Romans chapter 15, as we have been now for a little while. And uh, today I'd like to cover verses 22 through 26. The last couple weeks uh, before our week off last week, uh, we were looking at verses uh, 14 through 21. So let's pick up reading in verse verse 14 and read down through verse 26 and then we'll see if we can kind of recall some things and set the context once again. He says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, I have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Well, as we're going through these, uh, this section, Paul's argument is kind of an ongoing, or not his argument, but his, his uh, points are kind of an ongoing discussion. And... Uh, and in order to be able to cover the material, I'm kind of having to break it up. And so we're kind of breaking mid-thought in several things. And we did that a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we'll do it again today. So I kind of apologize for that. But that's necessary given the limitation of time and Paul's long-windedness. So with those two things together, um, uh, it, we have to be very careful to kind of go back and remember the context and think through the context. So look down through verses, uh, well, particularly uh, when we were together two weeks ago, we were looking at verses 16 through 21. And I know that's a long time ago, but see, are there things in there as you look at those verses that you can kind of recall that we talked about or things that stuck in your mind from our discussion?
He's giving them the purpose for him writing to them and wanting to come see them. He's been given this job by Christ to really tell the gospel, and he's trying to do it to the best of his ability. He's starting with the Gentiles, and he says it's been very powerful. Okay, good, great. Good summary thoughts. What else? How does he view himself in this as he exercises this gift of apostleship that he has and his calling to the uh, Gentiles? How does he view himself functioning there? How does he describe it? Well, verse 20 talks about how he wants to go someplace and go places and the gospel where no one has heard. Okay, okay. Actually, plenty of Okay, so... Part of his uh, part of his strategy, if you want to use the term, part of his the way he carries out his ministry is he believes uh, that what God wants him doing is is not staying in an area until it's completely saturated, or going into areas where the gospel is already reached and and further uh, developing that area. But rather, his desire is to go into areas where Christ has not been named, and we see that his application of that in his practice is uh, is that he goes into kind of a strategic center and he spends some time there, maybe just a few weeks, in some cases a year or so. He spends some time there. He sees a church established in a strategic center and then he moves on to another place. But it's always a place where Christ was not named, uh, where they've not yet heard the gospel message presented. Uh, and that's kind of his strategy. We'll explore and think some more about that today. Uh, what else? Still, I'm groping for an answer to the question, how does he view this as he serves, as he, as he ministers? How does he view his ministry? As a what? As a priest, yes. He's viewing himself kind of as a priest carrying out the ministry of God. And, uh, and we talked about Uh, a couple ways in which when we exercise our spiritual gifts, uh, a couple ways in which we do it kind of as a priest. Now, we don't have priests like they had uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, We have nowadays, uh, we have what the Reformers called the priesthood of all believers. So all of us are priests and and, uh, all of us have spiritual gifts. And as we exercise those gifts, there's a couple ways in which which we are similar to a priest. And, and one is that we are, in one sense, mediating the grace of God to others. When God gives you a gift, it's because others around you need that gift. They don't have those particular abilities to the degree that you have those abilities. And so you are able to bring God's grace into their life through the exercise of that gift. Whether that gift is a gift of faith or a gift of giving or a gift of teaching or... Uh, any kind of whatever gift you have, uh, uh, leadership or administration or whatever it is, if you have a gift, as you exercise that gift, you are the vehicle by which God's grace is flowing from from Him through you to other people. So, uh, so that's one sense in which you're a priest. You're kind of a mediator of God's grace to people. Okay. The other sense in which you're a priest, and Paul particularly emphasized that in these verses, is that as you minister your gift to others, 
and they are edified and built up and their life is transformed and they become more Christ-like as a result of you exercising your gift, that becomes a sacrifice to God. You're offering those people to whom you've ministered, whose lives you've helped change, you are offering them as a sacrifice to God. So, so this whole thing about spiritual gifts really is pretty important because it has to do with the impact that our life has in the lives of others and it has to do with what we're offering to God. You know, we think, well, gee, if I just put my, you know, if I just put my uh, check in the offering plate uh, on Sunday morning, then I've made my sacrifices to God. But that's clearly not the case. I've not made the sacrifices to God, all the sacrifices to God that He desires of me until I have functioned with my spiritual gift and ministered to others and been the vehicle of God's grace to others and been the way that God has transformed their lives in some way, to some degree, through the exercise of my gift. Okay. Anything else from those verses? <clears throat> well, let's go on then and pick it up uh, with uh, verse uh, beginning in verse uh, 22. And he begins to talk about how he's not come to Rome yet, but it's been his desire to come to Rome. And kind of on a, uh, as I was thinking about this uh, story, as Paul begins to go into the, uh, just into the details of his plans. Okay, this, these are my plans, and this is why I plan to do the what I've done, and and uh, this is what lies ahead. As we get into this, I was, I got thinking about an experience I had many years ago. And when I got thinking about how many years ago, it was kind of scary. I realized it was over 50 years ago. <laughs> so it was when I was in my mid, uh, uh, maybe early to mid-teens, and I was in a youth group in a small church in a, in, a, in a rural community in southwest Nebraska. My dad was the pastor. And, uh, and I was in the youth group. And we used to have these... Uh, uh, we would we would cooperate with other churches in southwest Nebraska. There were uh, a number of other churches in southwest Nebraska that were similar kind of semi-rural churches like our church was. They weren't particularly large. But uh, once every three months, the youth groups from these various churches, and I don't remember how many of them there were, uh, but the youth groups from these various churches would get together and have kind of a rally. I, I think it was probably on a Saturday, as I recall. We'd get together and we'd have sort of a rally and there'd be, you know, games and there'd be food and there'd be teaching or preaching or whatever, you know, designed for the young people. And at one point, somebody, I have no idea who, whether it was my dad or one of the other pastors from one of the other churches or one of the youth leaders, you know, those small churches usually don't have youth leaders per se, you know, certainly not paid ones. <clears throat> but I, so I don't know who did it, but they came up with this idea that one way to get the young people to study the Bible would be to have a contest. And so they decided they would have a contest, kind of a game show type contest. This was, uh, you know, 50 years ago. So game shows were uh, uh, maybe not the model for everything that went on like they are today. But. But it was a con it was going to be a contest, and what they wanted to do they wanted us to get to they wanted to get us to study the book of Acts. Okay, so what they were going to do was at these rallies they would have a they would have this competition, and each church would 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 have a team of three contestants who would join in in this competition. So, 
So you had each church had to had to uh, go through a process of picking which three young people would be on their team, which would represent them at this rally. Okay. And so they put, I don't know why they picked the book of Acts. I don't know if there was a lot of strategy or thought that went into that. But they picked the book of Acts, maybe because it had 28 chapters and they were going to do this for a year. And so it broke down into four uh, easy segments of seven chapters. I don't know if that's the reason they chose to do it that way or not. But they chose the book of Acts. And they, and so for a year in our youth groups, we would study and in our private lives, we would study the book of Acts. And then uh, just uh, in the weeks prior to the rally, our church would have a little kind of you know, sub-contest to see which three people would be representing our church at these rallies. And so for a year, I just, along with my brothers and other people in our youth group, dug into the book of Acts seven chapters at a time and tried to learn all the dates and names and events and et cetera, et cetera. And then we would have a competition and the three best would become, uh, uh, would be, uh, would become the team. And then we would go to the rally and we would compete. Well, you know, it kind of, now that I think back on it, it kind of looks rigged because all four times my two brothers and I ended up on the team from our church. So I don't know who was writing the questions. <laughs> I have no idea who was writing the questions. But but we ended up representing our team. And and I don't remember all the details, uh, but we uh, we did fairly well. I remember at each one of the rallies, uh, the, the Southwest Nebraska rallies, we did pretty good. I know we won at least a couple of them. I don't know. Now, that's a long story, and it's kind of a long time ago. But And it's really not even directly related to the subject that we're going to talk about today. But I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, you know, I wonder if anybody besides me remembers that. Yeah, I thought about calling my brothers yesterday and said, do you remember that? You know, we, I've never talked about it with anybody since it was over, you know. So in 50 years, I haven't talked to anybody. So I don't know if anybody remembers it. I don't even know if the people who came up with the idea and planned it in orchestra, I don't even know if they're still alive. My dad certainly isn't. And so I don't even know if those people are still alive. But what happened in that time is that as a, as a very young person in my early to mid-teens, I became saturated with an understanding of the history of the New Testament church. What went on? What Paul did? What these other apostles did? And all these times and all these places and names and events and things. And, and it really did become a foundation in my life for my further understanding as I built on that foundation. Whenever I studied the New Testament, sometimes, uh, 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 oftentimes I should say, Things that I think about that Paul says, particularly when we get into a passage like we're in today, my understanding of that goes back, in part at least, to the foundation that was laid in my life when I was just a young person in a church in southwest Nebraska. And the, the point, the reason that struck me as I thought about that is I thought, you know, the people that set that up, they were probably just trying to figure out a way to get young people to study their Bibles, you know. And, you know, and I suppose we could be a little critical of, of using competition and competing against one another as a motivation for young people to study their Bibles. And, you know, we could probably quarrel with that motive if we want. But I can tell you it worked. 
<laughs> and it did lay a foundation in my life that, that, that has been built upon and built upon and built upon and built upon for years to come. And I am convinced that an understanding of what Paul did and why Paul did what he did and where he went and the things that happened when he went there and the other things that the book of Acts records, I think those things are all really important. The Holy Spirit obviously recorded them because He wanted us to know about them because they have some kind of relevance or application to us today. And the other thing about that that encouraged me is I thought, you know, the people who the people who did that, who set that little contest up and ran that thing for a year and were faithful to follow through to its completion, you know, they have no idea that there would be a Sunday school class in Norman, Oklahoma, 50 years later, who would be benefiting in part from them simply doing their ministry. Doing a little thing with young people trying to get young people to study the Bible. And I don't know if anybody else was as affected by it as I was, but I always look back on that as foundational in my life. So it's a lesson to us, isn't it, about spiritual gifts and ministry and doing what God has called us to do. There are oftentimes unseen results and oftentimes results many years later that we're, full, that we're not aware of at all. And so I just thought about that and I thought I'd share that with you because it came to my mind as I was thinking about this passage as Paul is just talking about a lot of things that are recorded for us and happen in the book of Acts. But he starts out in verse 22 because he's been talking about how he's, he's had this desire to come to Rome and, uh, and, he, and, uh, and, and he's been talking about this strategy that he has, this, this method of, of ministry that, that he believes that God has given to him. And he says, For this reason I have often been prevented in coming to you but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, and there's actually a break in thought there, so I'll stop right here uh, at this moment. But, but he, talks, he talks about how he's been often prevented from coming to Rome. He said the same thing back in chapter 1. I don't know if you remember, but if you flip back chapter 1, uh, and uh, as he's uh, giving the introduction to this letter, uh, he talks about uh, wanting to come and see them. And he says in verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then I'll mention this a little bit later, so we'll go ahead and read it. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. We'll come back to that in verse 14 later. But, uh, but the point is that Paul has, early on in the book, he said, listen, I, I really want to come see you people. And I have planned to come and see you on a number of occasions but he says, I've been prevented thus far. Now, when we read that in chapter 1, he really gives us no clue or no hint as to what are the things that have hindered him when he has time after time planned to go to Rome, but then not been able to do it. And he doesn't really tell us what has hindered him. And as we think back on 
Paul's ministry, we think about the things that he encountered as he carried out his ministry. There are a number of things that come to my mind that might have prevented him from getting to Rome. Uh, We know that he suffered uh, a great deal of persecution. He suffered a great deal of opposition. The Jews opposed him. Uh, Many Gentile leaders opposed him. He was, uh, as he tells us in another place, he was often in danger from various things, from robbers and, and dangers from his countrymen and dangers from the Gentiles. And he encountered all kinds of dangers. He was shipwrecked a number of times. He was beaten one time almost to the point, or maybe even to the point of death. Uh, I mean, he just experienced a lot of things that if you and I experienced them, they would certainly be a deterrence to us getting done the things we wanted to get done. So when we read that verse in Romans chapter 1, a lot of those kind of things are the things that pop into our mind. And in fact, when even on the trip when Paul was successful in getting to Rome, think about the things that waylaid him along the way. As we'll read in the passage we're looking at, as we'll talk about in the passage we're reading today, he actually planned to go back to Jerusalem first, which he did. And when he gets to Jerusalem, then, of course, he experiences a great deal of opposition from the Jewish leaders. He ends up being arrested and thrown in prison and spending two years in prison. And then when he finally gets out of prison and gets on a ship and heads to Rome, he ends up shipwrecked. That's on his successful attempt to get to Rome. What about all the unsuccessful times when he planned to go to Rome and then something hindered him? So, it's possible when Paul's talking about his hindrances that those are some of the things that he has in mind. But in the context of the verses we're looking at today, it seems like there's something else that's hindered him. What is it? Okay, it's his... It's his need to share the gospel in the way that God wanted him to share the gospel. In other words, he's been talking about how the fact that he was committed to this principle of preaching Christ where Christ had not yet been named. And he wanted to go to Rome and he wanted to visit the people in Rome. In chapter 1, he tells us he wanted to be encouraged by them and, and, and to encourage them that he wanted to bear some fruit among them, that he wanted to preach the gospel. He tells about all these things he wanted to do in Rome, but Rome is a place where Christ is already named. So in Paul's mind, Rome is a lower priority to Paul. Not a lower priority to God, but a lower priority to Paul in Paul's administration or carrying out an application of his gift and his calling and his ministry. So it's a lower priority Paul and his higher priority is he first has these regions where Christ has not been named and he desires to see that fully accomplished. And so he told us in the verses we looked at a couple weeks ago that he had finally fully accomplished that. That he had fully accomplished the preaching of the gospel from Jerusalem, he says, roundabout as far as Illyricum. And if you kind of view, the ma- this is a map here, okay? And here's the Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem is down here. And, and, and Paul had, had spent a little bit of time in Jerusalem and he'd gone up to Antioch here on the, on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. And then he'd covered the area that we think of today as Turkey, was then called Asia Minor, and he reached a number of strategic cities in that area over as far as Ephesus. And, and, and then he started moving north and he tried to go north. It tells us in the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit said, no, I don't want you to go that way. 
And then he tried to go another direction. The Holy Spirit said, "No, I don't want you to go that way." So he's just kind of sitting there on, you know, kind of on his haunches, going, "What, you know, what do I do now?" And then the Holy Spirit sends him a vision and tells him to go over the over the sea. What's the sea there? I I, I get those guys mixed up. So let me look real quick uh, on my map. Uh, I want to say it's the Adrian Sea, but uh, the Aegean Sea, the Aegean Sea. That's right. This one is the Aegean Sea, and then there's the Ionian Sea over here. So he goes. So he's called to Macedonia across the Aegean Sea, which is the the peninsula that we think of as Greece today. And he spends quite a bit of time there on this uh, this uh, uh, peninsula. And uh, you know that's Berea and Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens, all that area down in there. And he spends quite a bit of time there. And we don't really learn this in the Book of Acts, but apparently also he got all the way up to the area of Iconium, which is clear up at the top of this peninsula, just across the Ionian Sea, then, from the Italian peninsula. Okay? And so, so he had managed to cover the whole area from Jerusalem all the way up to knocking on the doors of the Italian peninsula and to Rome. Okay? Well, so, so what Paul is saying is, God had me doing this and every time I thought, well, now I can move on and I can see Rome, God was saying, no, there's more to do here. Now, well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? But it struck me as I was thinking about that. Is whenever we make choices in our lives, whenever you make a choice or virtually any time you make a choice in your life to do something, by the nature of that choice, you have precluded doing other things. You ever notice that? <laughs> it's very seldom in our life we get a choice where we get to do everything we want, right? But we make choices in our lives, and those choices preclude us from doing something else. I was chatting on Facebook uh, the other day with a, a, a guy I knew many years ago, and then we reconnected over Facebook a couple of years ago, and so we interact a lot. His brother in Christ, he lives up in Minnesota, and uh, I don't know exactly what he does for a living, but I know he travels some, and uh, he may be in some kind of consulting or sales business or something, because I know he travels around and spends uh, sometimes a week or two in various cities up there in the north, particularly up in the north, uh, northern part of the country. And uh, so I don't know what he does, but we were chatting on Facebook, and he says, by the way, Rick, he says, I don't know if I ever told you this, but if I were to get a second life, a shot at a second life, he says, I'd like to be a painter, meaning a house painter like me, you know. I'm going, the guy's touched in the head. There's something wrong with him, you know. But, but he obviously made a choice to do what he, one thing, and that precluded. So he's not going to, probably never going to be a house painter, you know. He doesn't know how lucky he is, okay. So he's not going to be a house painter. Okay? And you've made choices in your life. And every time you make a choice and you commit yourself to that choice, you've precluded other things. Have you ever notice that? So when you decided, you, you know, maybe you went to college and in college you decided to pick a major and study that major. And what did that do? Well, that precluded you doing a lot of other things in college you may have liked to have done. Or you uh, picked a career. And you said, well, you know, I'm going to do this. And when you did this, it precluded you from doing some other things. Maybe these other things were good. You know, maybe you were supposed to be president of the United States or could have been president of the United States. 
I don't know if that would have been good or not, but maybe you could have. But you precluded that by choosing to be whatever you are. Okay. So when we make our choices, we preclude other choices. Oftentimes they're good choices. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just that we've decided we're going to do this instead. This is actually a biblical principle. And it applies in a couple ways. Jesus brings this principle out when he says you cannot serve two masters, right? He says you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon. Now, if you make a choice to serve God and you commit to that choice and follow through on that choice, you are not going to serve mammon. You can't. They're mutually exclusive. And if you make a choice to serve mammon, you have by that choice said, I am not going to serve God. So this principle that our choices preclude other options applies in, the, in this area of our, of our spiritual service and our spiritual worship as opposed to serving our lusts or serving the world uh, or, or, or uh, serving the flesh, right? So we make a choice and when we choose, choose to serve God, we preclude these things. Well, that's pretty obvious. But it's also true that when we choose to serve God in a certain way, by that choice, we preclude serving God in other ways. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking of the example of King David. Now, you remember there was a point in King David's life where... Uh, he was pretty well established and things were going pretty good and he had the kingdom pretty well secured and all that sort of thing. And he looked around and he looked at his house and he says, man, I live in this really nice house. This, he calls it a house made of cedar. You know, can you imagine this beautiful palace that he lived in made out of cedar from Lebanon, etc. And so he says, I live in this. And then I look out my window and I see that God dwells in a tent. And I would like, because God has done this for me, I would like to build a beautiful temple for him. What was the outcome of that? He prepared everything to send it. Okay, why? Why didn't he build it? Why did God say no? No? He was a man of war. You see, David's job as king was to secure the kingdom. That was his job. It wasn't that, and he did have blood on his hands, but not in a... Yeah, exactly. So he had blood on his hands, but not in a sinful sense. He had been given the job of the national security of Israel. That was his task. And he had gone out and he had done that and he had done it well and he had honored God with it. It was God's work for him. But when at that point in time, when he decided, I want to build a temple for God, God said no. He appreciated what David did. He appreciated David's heart. And he honored David for that heart. He said that's, you can go back and read about it in First Samuel and Chronicles about how God honored him for that desire. But God said, no, I don't want somebody building my, my house who's who has done all this warfare and killed all the... I want, you know... And so we'll have your son build the house. So you see, and I don't think David knew. Obviously, he didn't know when he made his choice to follow God and be a great warrior. 
He didn't know, but he was precluding another option to serve God, i.e. to build the temple. So even when we make choices to serve God, and we follow through on those choices to serve God, it precludes other ways of serving God. Right? And that's exactly what, they, what Paul is encountering here. He, has, he believes that God has told him not only to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but to do that apostleship, to minister that apostleship in a particular way. And that God gave him certain responsibilities in certain areas. And so this was what was the driving vision in Paul's life. And what that meant was that although going to Rome was a good thing, and that going to Rome could bear some fruit, and he could see some good things happen there, and he could encourage them, and they could encourage him, and he could preach the gospel things, some things he talks about there in Rome. Even though those were good things, those were things that Paul had to defer. Because God had given him another job to do. And so you go, so what's, what's your point, Rick? Well, the point is, again, as we make application in our lives, we all have a gift from God. We've talked about this. And recently, a couple of weeks ago or so, we talked about that passage in Corinthians where Paul describes, he was talking about gifts there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he talks about how there are varieties of gifts and varieties of ministries and varieties of effects, right? And the way I understand what he's talking about there is that there are these kind of general categories of gifts. So somebody may have, let's take the gift of teaching. Somebody has the gift of teaching. But he says there are, in addition to varieties of gifts, there are varieties of ministries. In other words, there are varieties of ways in which those gifts which we have are served or that we serve the people. So you can have someone who has the gift of teaching and she's a mother and she has small children. And so she exercises her gift of teaching in teaching her little children. Okay. Another person may have a gift of teaching. Uh, could be even a woman. And, and she may have a, a, a job of teaching a, a large congregations of people, large congregations of women. And we know of some women who do that. And they have this gift of teaching. And they exercise their gift. They minister their gift in a different way than the mother teaching her children at home. But they're both bona fide gifts. They're both bona fide ways of serving God with the gift that they have. And, and then he says there are varieties of effects. So you can have two people who have the same gift and even minister in a very similar way, but the impact of their ministry is different. So they have a different result. Now the thing is that I believe that for each one of us, God has a plan. He's given you a gift. He has a ministry where He wants you to employ that gift. And He has an impact He wants you to have in the lives of people. And it's different for you than for anybody else in the church of Jesus Christ around the world. 
You have a un- you have a gift which is somewhat unique, but a lot of other people have a gift. And with that gift, you have a ministry that's different than a lot of the other people who share your gift. But there may be other people who have a similar ministry. But you also have an impact. And your impact will be unique. Your impact will be different than anybody else. And God has a place where He wants to use you. Now, if you follow God's plan for your life, if you are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and you follow His plan in determining that you have a gift and figuring out where to use that gift in ministry, if you follow through on that, that means there's going to be some really cool things that you could do for God that you won't do. And opportunities will come your way and you will say, no, I don't think so because this is where I need to be. You see, that's what Paul's doing here. So what, we have, so what we have to understand is for each one of us, there are opportunities to serve God that we're not called to do. That would actually be a distraction from the thing we are called to do. And Paul is so clear in his understanding of what God wants him to do and where he fits into God's plan that even though going to Rome is a good thing and it's something he wants to do, he says he's longed to do it for many years and he has even planned to do it, every time he's planned to do it, God has said, not yet. Because you got to do this first. And you got to do this first. You got to do this first. And it apparently happened time and time and time again. And so I have a great deal of respect for Paul. Because it's very easy to get fascinated and caught up in, you know, the, the glamour of some other opportunity to serve God and to miss doing the thing that God has for us to do. It takes a great deal of clarity of vision, doesn't it? So, so to me, this is a pretty significant thing. When Paul says that I've been hindered many times and immediately, like I said, the things that come to my mind are persecution and shipwreck and robbers along the way and, you know, and all these other things. But in reality, apparently what Paul meant was God didn't let me do it. Because I had another job to do. I can't remember exactly what it was, but Paul even tells in a letter, one of the letters that he's been forbidden to go further into Asia. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he wants to go to Rome. But, but we need to understand this, too. When he says... Uh, in these verses, when he says, I'm planning to go to Rome or I'm planning to come to you. What is his plan regarding going to Rome? Another case of me asking a question not very well and wanting exactly the right answer. He's wanting them to help him on to another area. Okay. So, in other words, 
Rome's really not the point, is it? He's wanting to go somewhere else, and Rome's just a way stop. Okay. So he really wants to go there. He really wants to see those people. But the only way he can get it into his itinerary is if he fits it in with something else he wants to do, which is what? Go to Spain. Okay. Now, we don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain. Because, as it turns out, when he got to Rome, you know, he got to Rome kind of not the way he planned. <laughs> because he got to Rome as a prisoner and he ended up, you know, a prisoner in Rome for two years. So he spent longer in Rome than he planned. Uh, but then there's the end of that first imprisonment in Rome and then there's a period of time and then Paul, uh, we understand from tradition, ends up back in Rome again a second time as a prisoner and, and is eventually martyred in Rome. So there's a period of time between his first imprisonment and his second imprisonment. And, uh, and it's commonly believed that he actually made it to Spain during that interval between his two imprisonments in Rome. And the primary reason we believe he did, for those who do believe he did, is because there's a letter written by one of the church fathers, a guy by the name of Clement, written towards the end of the first century, in which he's talking about Paul, and he refers to Paul having gone to a, to a region far out, which most readers of Clement assume he's talking about Spain. So apparently, uh, according to Clement, he did make it to Spain. We don't know for sure how reliable Clement's testimony is on that. But apparently he did eventually make it to Spain. But this was his objective. And Spain is interesting because Spain is different than any place Paul has been so far. You remember back in, uh, in chapter 1 of Romans, and let me just, uh, I, I said we'd refer to this verse. Let me just read it to you again. He says in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So there's a reference to the Greeks and the barbarians. And he says, I'm under obligation to both. Now, who are the barbarians? And don't say the teenagers down the street. Okay. It's everybody but the Greeks and Romans. Okay. It's everybody but the Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured people. Okay. But everywhere that Paul has been so far in his ministry has been under that orb or under that realm of the Greek speakers. Okay. So everywhere in Asia Minor and in what we think of as Greece today, and up until those are all Greek speakers. Even the Romans knew Greek. Okay, so so everywhere he's been so far, he's been speaking to the Greeks, and not Greeks by ethnicity, but Greeks by language and culture, from Jerusalem all the way up to Illyricum and certainly Rome too. But he says I'm under obligation to the barbarians, and when you get to Spain you are then outside of that orb of Greek culture. You have people who don't speak Greek. They speak another language. They are actually very resistant to Roman influence. Okay? So it's really a different world. So when Paul's getting ready to move from Iconium and, and Rome and move on to Spain, he's really getting ready to venture into some new territory and something very different than he's ever experienced before. 
So perhaps one of the reasons that Paul wanted to go to Spain is specifically because they were barbarians and he had a sense of obligation to them too to reach the barbarians. Furthermore, it's possible that that Paul just viewed Spain as kind of the end of that that missionary cycle that he talked about from Jerusalem round about as far as Illyricum and he's viewing that 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 he still that he's not he hasn't he's fulfilled it up to here but to really fulfill this thing I've got to get over to Spain to really finish this job okay or it's possible too that as he reads the old testament and he reads for example in Isaiah and he reads in Psalms about how God's glory is going to be displayed all the way to Tarshish and the people of Tarshish are going to bring offerings to God and things like that. That Paul has in his understanding that Spain, that when the Old Testament is speaking of Tarshish, that it's speaking of pain, of Spain, pain, maybe pain too, but speaking of Spain. And so it may be that he viewed Spain as kind of the fulfillment of some of these Old Testament prophecies. Now, these are all, to some degree, speculation as to what exactly was Paul's motivation for going to Spain. But, of course, we know what his primary motivation was. He wanted to preach the Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended Lord. That's what he wanted to do. And he wanted to do it. He wanted to spend his life doing it. And Spain was the next step. Rome was not in that as far as someplace that he needed to go to preach where Christ was not named because Christ was already named there. And we know from what we read earlier in Romans that the fame of the Roman church was spreading throughout the whole world. So they were obviously doing a pretty good job there in the Roman church. So they didn't need Paul in that sense. Nor did it really fit into his strategy. But since it was on the way to Spain... It was now possible for him to plan to stop there and to spend, he says, a little time there, as he says in these verses, and enjoy your company. So he's envisioning this this opportunity to come to Spain, excuse me, to come to Rome and, and just to be refreshed, to be built up, to enjoy their company. As he says in chapter one, he says, to, to encourage you and to be encouraged by you. He says to preach the gospel among you and to bear some fruit among you. So, so it, it is to Paul a, a, a point of refreshment. But it's something else to Paul as he's going to Spain. And what is that? Somebody's already referred to it. What else does he plan to have to accomplish while he's in Rome? Okay, he says to be helped by you on my way there, meaning to Spain. So he wants to be helped. Now, what's interesting about that word help there, the Greek word that that translates actually throughout the New Testament becomes kind of a technical term for missionary support. So it pops up in a number of places in the New Testament, specifically referring to the idea of supporting those who are in the ministry of getting the gospel out. 
So when we see it in the New Testament, when you see it in the Greek, you don't notice it in English because it's translated several different ways in English. But it has that sense to it, has that element to it of the idea of a technical term for missionary support. Okay, And it's used in various places in the New Testament, like I say, with reference to the idea of supporting those who are in ministry. But even there, it has a variety of meanings. So in some cases, it has to do with the idea of financial and logistical support. So when we think about the situation of Spain over here, actually from your perspective, Spain's over here, okay? But from the, so when we think about Spain, it's way out there. It's a long way from Antioch. It's a long way from, from Berea or Thessalonica or Corinth. Okay. It's a long ways away. It's two seas over. Okay. Uh, about a thousand miles. Okay. So it's a long way over there. And what that means is, if you think in terms of warfare, you know, war strategies, what it means is your support lines are getting stretched really thin. And if you studied war, if you studied war theory, or if you studied the history of war at all, you know that when an army gets too far away from its base of supply, it becomes very vulnerable as those supply lines get longer and longer because they become vulnerable to attack. Yeah, ask Napoleon. Ask a lot of guys who got beat that way, okay? Uh, ask the Germans, okay, as they went into Russia, okay? So, as you stretch out your supply lines, you become more vulnerable. And so, Paul's getting a long way from those churches that are supporting him and helping him. And so, what he wants to do is he makes this very kind of unsubtle hint to the Romans, I need your help. I need a base of support. And he's probably referring to some degree to the idea of financial or logistical support. Because that gives him then a base of support much closer to Spain. Just a few hundred miles away. Well, the word also has another sense to it though. It has the sense of... Uh, not only financial, but it has the idea of someone who comes alongside as an escort or as a companion uh, to accompany you. And we see it used that way in the book of Acts a couple of times where people came along and they helped Paul by traveling with him. Okay. So it has that sense to it. And... Uh, and so it is used, as I say, in the New Testament in regard to missionary support in both ways. It's used in reference to logistical financial support and it's used in reference to this idea of being an escort or a companion or an accompaniment to accompany someone. Okay. So it's possible that Paul has both things in mind. That he has the idea that I, you know, I'm going to need some financial support, I'm going to need some logistical support uh, that's a little closer to me as I move forward into Spain. But it may have been, too, that he was also petitioning for some, just some people that would say, we'll go with you. Particularly since he's now going into a region of the world that speaks a language he does not know. 
So maybe he was just wanting some people from Rome who knew how to speak the language in Spain. I don't know if it was Spanish at the time. I don't know what the language was, but it wasn't Greek. And uh, so maybe he just needed some or, or or just some people to go along and to encourage him and to help him. So what we discover from this idea, from this word, is that the idea of missionary support is a whole lot of things. It's not only money. It includes a lot of things. When my son and his wife uh, left a year and a half ago or whatever it was to go to the Middle East, and and they packed up tons and tons and tons of stuff, and I think they had something like 12 or 15 different bags that they were checking or carrying as they traveled on the airplane with two small children. Okay, and and you know they're trying to. They're trying to take what they need to have some kind of semblance of decent life as they're living in the Middle East. And, uh, and one of the things that they chose to take with them for the sake of their two little girls was some children's books. Okay. So they took some of their favorite, the girls' favorite children's books. Some of them had been brand new and just bought for them to take with them as they went. And uh, some of them were others that they had. And there were, I don't remember how many books, but they took these books with them. And I don't remember exactly what happened, but when they got to the Middle East, somehow that package of books got lost in the Middle East. They got there, but they lost them within the first few days they were there. Now, children's books, you know. In the whole scheme of world evangelization, what's a half a dozen dozen children's books? But it was a heartbreaker (laughs) for them. For their little girls, I think they left them in a cab or something. I don't remember what happened. They were gone. But you know what? There was a couple here at Trinity that found out about that. And you know what they did? They got a list of those books, and they went out and they went around and they bought those books, and they packaged them up, and they sent them to the Middle East. That's missionary support. That's missionary support. That's what the word helped means in Romans chapter 15. Or think about the issue of companionship. When my, wife, when my son was first getting ready to go overseas the first time with the International Mission Board, uh, we traveled uh, to Virginia for his, uh, for his commissioning service. And we were there about a day. And one of the things they did is they had a meeting for all the parents and family of people who had family members leaving uh, for the mission field. And one of the things they stressed to us is, while your son or daughter is overseas for the next two years, one thing you need to plan to do is you need to go visit them. And so we did. We made a plan and, you know, it was expensive and people from the church here helped us, but we got it together and we went over and we just visited Ben and Aaron as they were there uh, in, in, in Russia. And, 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 and that's just intended as a way of encouraging and supporting those who are on the mission field. It's that idea of an escort, a companion, somebody to accompany you. You know, there's a whole lot of ways we can serve missionaries Besides giving financially. And that, of course, is crucial. That, of course, is important. But have you ever thought about somebody you knew or you loved 
who's gone to the mission field and they're over there and they've been over there for a year or two years or whatever. Have you ever thought about just going over there? Taking a week or two and saying, I want to come and see what you're doing so I can pray better for you. So I, so I can just be here so you can see somebody, you know, with a white face from back home. <laughs> you know, just to encourage you. You see, there's a lot of ways that we can help and we can encourage people. And Paul is just simply saying to the Romans, this is hard work, folks. And I can't do this by myself. I need your help. Will you help me as I go on to Spain? And so that's his request. He says, after I've spent some time, he says, with you, just enjoying your company. Oh, but by the way, I've got a detour. I've got to go 2,000 miles out of my way to deliver a package. Everything's done. All my work is done here. I'm ready to go to Spain. I get to see you people. I'm really looking forward to this. This is something I've wanted to do for years and years and years. And I'm excited and I'm moving in that way. But oh yeah, there's one other thing that God has given me to do. And that's to deliver a package to Jerusalem. Because, he says, the saints in Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor in Jerusalem. Now, I just made about a 2,000 mile trip this last week. I loaded all my stuff up in the trunk of the car in the back seat. My wife and I climbed into the nice, cushy, comfortable seats of our car. We cranked on the air conditioner, stuck recordings of Sherlock Holmes in the CD player, and headed north. And we drove, 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 and we we did it all in 10 days, less than 10 days, spending days just visiting without traveling at all. And I thought it was a pretty big trip. What was it like for Paul to say, I'm going back to Jerusalem. Getting on a ship, traveling, you know, and we're not talking about an ocean liner here, you know. Getting on a ship and traveling all the way back. And walking. After he gets off the ship, walking and walking and walking. More miles than most of us will ever walk. Just to deliver a package. Now, I want to suggest to you, and we'll explore this next week, that that package that he was delivering was more than simple charity for poor people in Jerusalem. That package had some pretty profound theological implications to it, which is why Paul says in another place, I'm going to put my seal on the delivery of that package. It was not enough for him to say, oh, you're going to Jerusalem? Would you take this back for me? He was personally obligated. And although his passionate heart, his passionate desire was to get to Spain, to stop in Rome on the way, 
He had a package, and that package was loaded with a theological significance. And he needed to see that it was personally delivered, and he needed to put his personal seal upon it. And that's what we'll look at next week. Okay?